today's episode, we'll be discussing farmsy, beef prices, and Buttergate, as well as a new segment we like to call WTF. So turn up the dial, sit back, and enjoy the ride. Well, my buckle makes impressions on the inside of her thigh. There are little feathered Indians where we tussle through the night. If I'd known she was religious, then I wouldn't have came stone to the house of such an angel who fucked up to get back Hey Lance, how are you today? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Jake? Good. I'm uh, excited to do episode three with you today. We uh, kind of went live this last weekend um, uh, and we have 35 listeners already as of recording today on Tuesday. So that's kind of exciting. That is very exciting. Hopefully there's more than 35 listeners after episode three. But yeah, yeah <laughs> we're, uh, we're pretty excited to be able to put two episodes on and get this third one out there for people. It's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. We both had quite a few people texting us about that, that they were happy with it. And even on our Facebook post, uh, two people were commenting. One commented that the audio was terrible in episode one, and we we knew that. <laughs> we now invested in some microphones, which is we're now above uh, base level podcasting. But uh, it was it was good to hear some initial feedback. So hopefully people keep listening, and hopefully the podcast keeps getting better and better. Yeah, good, good, bad, or otherwise, comments are appreciated for sure. Yeah, and if you don't like it, let us know as well. And if enough of those come in, we'll probably just quit. So if you want to get us off the air, just let us know as well. Yeah, yeah you bet. So uh, some of the topics we're going to talk about today. Um, uh, we're going to talk about the website Farmsy, which is an agritourism website. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, beef prices um, and, and their rise at the moment. And then we'll uh, jump into uh, Buttergate, which we had mentioned in our intro last week but didn't get around to talking um and then we're gonna uh premiere our new segment called what or i guess wtf what the farm so basically anything cool or not cool that happened on our farms this week to kind of give you an insight of what our weekly lives look like um uh, so yeah we'll jump right into farmsy i guess i'll explain a little bit what they are first um and i'll just check their website maybe they even have an intro that i could read about them um uh, so Farmsy, it's spelled F-A-R-M-Z-Y. And Farmsy is your platform to book real farm adventures, stays, and food experiences. You can eat farm fresh food, immerse yourself in nature, and stay under the stars, all while supporting local businesses. When you join our online community, you're instantly connected to passionate farmers who are ready to share their farm experiences with you. Escape the city frenzy and make memories with Farmsy. So... Farmsy is the creation of two farming brothers who believe everyone should have the opportunity to experience a farm. Matt and Graham Graff are fifth-generation Alberta farmers who are proud to be farming land acquired from grandparents on both sides of the family. They created Farmsy to help connect people with real, authentic farmers and farm adventures. So Farmsy was brought to my attention uh, a couple weeks ago um, uh, by the CRE in Camrose. They connected us, I guess. Um, and they actually farm like on the opposite side of the lake of me, um, out by New Norway. But I had never met them before, never heard about the website. So apparently they, uh, last year with COVID, when Alberta Open Farm Days had to go uh, basically into booking uh, stays, then uh, they uh, had to start using uh, an online booking uh, site. So Farmsy kind of came onto the scene as a, as a farm Airbnb. So the ability to, to pre-book tours and stuff. 
And so they really did a really good job with uh, Alberta Open Farm Days. And they, I think they had like 30,000 uh, people go, th- go through the site during the month of August, and uh, which just was, of course, huge. But now they're kind of looking for a more sustainable business model throughout the year. And so they're looking to partner with farms. Um, so I had initial conversations with them and uh, we set up a, a tour basically with them and, and, and checked it out. They, they loved what we were doing and, and I kind of was interested in how their website was working. Um, so I thought, why not? And, uh, and signed up. And then we did our first tour last week. And you basically, as a farm, you set up your, your date for when you want tours and people can book. Now, the new concept here basically is that you're charging people to come for a tour, which really is, is kind of unique to how farmers think about it. Like I, I've done hundreds, hundreds, or if not thousands of tours on our farm and never charged a dollar for it, but it also takes a lot of time. And, uh, and people almost value it and respect it more if, if you're charging them for it because they, they kind of expect quality then. Um, uh, so we gave it a shot and I had my first three people show up on Friday night, um, uh, which is really exciting. And they're, they're just people that live in cameras and we're super excited to see the farm. And, and from what I think, they, they had a great time. So it's kind of interesting. I know that Lance, that uh, you guys are looking at this platform as well for, for your farm, possibly. Yeah, after, after your... Uh your experience with them and, and what you told me, I did reach out to them and we've had an email exchange and you know, it's at first you told me about it about three weeks ago or something like that. And I, I didn't think much of it. So I think I'm probably the same as most farms. I, I don't know if I want people touring or not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a messy place. It's a, you know, especially this time of year, it's, it's a busy place and, and you get scared, I think, with some of the some of the bad media stories a person hears. Uh, you know, there's the that Hutterite, uh, you know, broiler operation, which is obviously on the extreme side. But then, you know, you, you can't let the bad those those bad news stories that are rare, I think, prevent prevent you from from taking down a, you know a different path. We already have our our farm is pretty wide open on social media, lots of pictures and videos. And I think people really appreciate that. The urban consumer, I think really appreciates that. So the more I thought about it, you know, you, you know, I, I think I would be open to, to having tours through the farm. And I certainly enjoy it when we do, we, we do it on a very informal basis now. And most times it's people that we know, maybe, maybe well, maybe sometimes not very well, but it's, it's not usually a random tour. So it's, but, you know, this this would add that element to it, but I certainly do enjoy you know, showing people around our place. Yeah, I know, and some of your concerns are are well noted because I agree. Like it's it's risky. I mean, and I guess risky from the point that you want to you want to really show the good side, but it it's not always like that. It's it's like things happen, right? Um, even during my tour, I had a heifer stuck in a headlocker. It's just a completely random thing. It's something that we can easily take care of. We just have to help, kind of have to push her out. And uh, and it's just a, a bad luck situation where she kind of got her collar stuck on one of the headlockers. And the, I mean, these are animals that that are just, yeah, finding ways to get in trouble all day long, right? So when we walked by, one of, one of the young girls kind of noticed it. And, and I was like, so I had to explain what happened and how we're going to fix it and, and, and what's going to happen. And and they were okay. They actually accepted it. They're like, okay, yeah, we know that, that happens, and that's that's it's too bad, but it's uh, it's part of life, and and you know that you're going to take uh, take care of it. 
And uh, so it's kind of a good good way to show how we take care of even the bad stuff. Um, I'm definitely not not hiding anything. I'm not scared to delve into any kind of topic that they ask me. Like I've had I've had questions range from why cows aren't outside to antibiotic use in cows to why we're feeding palm fat. All these different reasons or different questions. So you just have to kind of be open and and I think consumers respect that for the most part. I think that what you're talking about with the turkey farm down south of the Hutterai colony. That wasn't tour related, right? That was just literal protest that broke in. And I do know that the government now is working on really strict legislation that will try and prevent that. Yeah, that's right. Oh, for sure. That that did have nothing to do with the tour. I think I think we get protective in the egg industry. We hear, you know, stories like the that Hutterite broiler operation, and we hear, you know, other stories. I know every year in 4-H, especially our kids were in the in a red deer area 4-H club for a few years and every year at the Red Deer District show where all the clubs come together at the Western Grounds <laughs> prior to it every time it was oh PETA might show up and protest PETA might show up and protest we're doing it to ourselves I mean we make ourselves scared as an industry and PETA was never never going to show up and protest I mean it was never going to happen but that but that those kind of things strike fear to us and and we feel a little beat, beaten down with some of the stories you hear in the media and we let that control our, and, and really it, it ends up being a, uh, you know, a detriment to, to, you know, reaching that urban consumer and actually getting the good news stories out. We aren't getting the good news if we're scared about the few bad things. Yeah, it's true. That, that puts that wall up, right? Like when, whenever there's a bad news story, it just puts another brick layer onto that wall between farmers and consumers. And I think what me and you are trying to do, both through our social media, both through tours, both even through this podcast, is trying to trying to take the brick bricklayers off, right? Trying to show consumers what we're doing and that we're not bad people. And I think that's important. Now, I will say, I was actually in Toronto a few years ago at the Royal, and it was during the dairy show, a dairy auction actually, and about thirty members of PETA came through the doors, like busting through the doors, yelling and screaming, and some of them had blood on them. Like it was like traumatizing <laughs> even like it, it was it was pretty scary and they uh, line up like we were right in the middle of the auction there had been heifers selling for over two hundred thousand dollars at this auction and they started lining around the ring and started yelling and screaming murder and all these things and and, and being a huge nuisance and everyone was kind of like at first like shocked a little bit because it was it was shock value right they did a good job of that and then uh, after like about a couple minutes or so the security was trying to usher them out, but they weren't being forceful and, and they weren't leaving, obviously. So uh, the auctioneers just kept going. They went right over top of them. And then it was super awkward because we were all bidding on animals and they were standing there yelling and screaming, but it didn't have any effect anymore. We just we had completely tuned them out. And then after a while, they left and the police showed up and and gave them tickets and they and they went on their way. So but that was a pretty, pretty scary, but interesting um, moment that I that I had in Toronto, but down, yes. downtown Toronto. Like, what do you expect? Yeah, oh, and that's the way to handle it too. That auctioneer, that was the that was the right move. They want the shock value. They want everybody to to stop, take notice, disrupt, and not allow them to disrupt. That was that was the right move. Yeah, exactly. No, back, back to the, the farm tours. Yeah, I wonder if you know a dairy is a much more contained operation, right? You kind of got a standard tour that you go through. You know, you walk through your parlor you walk through your heifer barns that's what it is right at at various times a year for us things are 
pretty tight, right? We can walk through right now. It's pretty close quarters. You can walk through the calving pens. You can walk through some of the, the heifer um, development areas, but that's not going to be the case in two months. Then it becomes extremely spread out. Also becomes more, um, more nostalgic for people. You see cows out grazing on the green grass and that's certainly something everyone wants to see, but it's, uh, I just got to figure out the logistics. I'm, I'm into this. I got to figure out the logistics of shuttling people around or, you know, how to, how to base a tour. Cause it, it's not the same thing month after month on a beef operation. It becomes quite a bit different in the different months. I think that that's what makes it exciting. So when, when me and Angela were at your place on Sunday, dropping off some of the speckle parks, even we got a tour with you in the razor or in the side-by-side. Now that's not large scale, but if you could you imagine like, me and Angela had fun like seeing all those calves they're different breed and they're cute running around with their moms can you imagine if you're a city person you get to jump in that side by side and go right in the middle of the herd and, and open the window and pet a calf like you don't have to get dirty because you don't have to walk around you get in at your house let's say or at the start point you drive around and I mean yeah it's maybe not going to be an hour or, or maybe you have to make it an hour and, and then you do a facility tour so 30 minutes inside the calf herd and then 30 minute kind of facility tours showing the, the butt box and, and the silencer shoot and all those things. And then where the feed is made, like we keep thinking that we don't have anything to show because it's so boring and, and mundane what we do in a daily basis. But for people that have no idea, it's, it's pretty interesting here. You talk about the most boring stuff. So maybe, and then in the summer, like I think there'd be nothing better than having cows on pasture and go out there and, and, and go look like, I don't think winter is where we want with this stuff. I think this is a spring, summer autumn thing um winter is tough to do tours and tough for people to come walking around outside if it's cold right and ice and all those things but if you have like cows out on pasture with calves in the middle of summer and take a side-by-side through them i think people would really enjoy that yeah we just need to do one of those six passenger side-by-sides that would, <laughs> that would accommodate most families no, well, far, right. Farmsy, if you're listening, we, we, we would love to increase our uh, tour capacity on our side-by-sides. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Polaris, you know, someone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this this time of year until, yeah, exactly, until, you know, October, this is this is gold right now, right? I mean, things are cute and then things turn green and yeah, it's, it's a pretty pretty awesome time for sure. The, so so the what if January you... January and February. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the January and February dog days of winter, minus 40, you're probably not getting too many people booking a, a tour anyways. So so what if you, so one of the coolest things, and I, and I did it a while ago, and you need a little technology in place to be able to do it. And you, and I think you're starting to get there, is you you walk into your barn, you got a cabin going on, and now ho- hopefully it's like an eight o'clock in the evening cabin because that would be perfect for your audience. You literally walk in, flick a switch and go live. Like be able to show everything you're doing as you're pulling a calf or, or attending to a newborn calf that's in the barn with, with a nurse cow. I did it a couple uh, weeks ago or a couple months ago where I Facebook live streamed a calving that was happening in one of our calving pens. Now, obviously a lot of risk with it going wrong, but I still think there's learning moments when if things don't go right, like if a calf if is born uh, dead on arrival, well, it's a learning experience for the consumers, but not something that we're super excited about sharing obviously but uh, that might be something for you guys if you just flick a switch going into the cabin barn and go live on facebook or something like that so we did we did that with a couple videos we didn't go live but we we put the video up you know a half an hour after the calving was done yeah and yeah people love that right one was uh just a, 
uh, self. She, she did it all herself. She capped herself and, yeah. and uh, that was good. Now another one I had to intervene, a foot was back and it wasn't a hard pull or anything. I just had to push the calf back in and pull a foot up. So I, I did, I did post those ones and certainly like, I, I want to do more of that for sure. Now that the weather's warm, nothing's coming through the barn anymore. Everything's calving out on the, on the grass. So I'm not able to get those, uh, security camera, calving camera opportunities quite as easily. Right. But I agree with you. Like last year, actually, when, uh, you know, when the first COVID lockdowns occurred, we ended up doing some virtual farm tours. You know, kids weren't in school, they're home during the day. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, maybe one parent or no parents were home during the day. So we did some, some virtual farm tours about this time of year when there's calves running around and it was live and people would, you know, ask questions over Facebook live and I would answer them as we're walking around or, or go back to a spot where they wanted to see something else. And that was, that was actually really rewarding. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, I'm actually doing something similar in, uh, I did one already so far this winter, but I just got booked actually today for another two. I signed up with uh, career pathways in the city of Edmonton and, uh, basically it's a, it's a, I guess an organization that ties you in with schools. So you basically submit what your uh, business is. So I put, of course, dairy farming and then a little bit about it, like te progressive technology and corn and genetics and all these things. And then if teachers find you interesting or your your pitch interesting, they can book you for a time slot and that you can then present to their classroom virtually. And so I did one in the winter with a grade 11 like uh, bio class. Oh, and then I did it on corn and growing corn and, uh, and they loved it. I didn't get many questions, which made it kind of awkward at the end. Cause it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> right. Like you can leave now, <laughs> but you, and you'd hope to get like yeah. four or five questions. Right. But who knows, but now I just got booked for 50 grade nine students in April, which will be interesting to see how, uh, how they, how they like that. And then I, I like that because like of those 50 kids, how many kids are from a, from a farm? Probably zero. How many kids are even second generation off a farm? Well, less and less and less, right? So it's a great way to try and get to the young consumers and show them what farms are uh, from a remote location. And then if they can follow your social media afterwards, then you can kind of get them hooked, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually really awesome for sure. I've uh, That would be a very rewarding thing to do because especially you get in, well, you don't even have to go very far. You get into anything bigger than our, you know, our immediate, you know, 6,000 people close towns, you get into anything the size of Red Deer, or bigger and there's there's no connection anymore that's yeah. for sure i'll send you that link afterwards and we can uh, you can you can see if you want to sign up for it but uh, yeah it's kind of cool and we'll see uh, how it goes and it doesn't take much like you, you make a little bit of a presentation you pretty much keep it the same between class and class because no one's going to watch it twice and uh, it takes about 30 minutes out of your day to do a little presentation and uh, look how many lives you could not live and you can change lives with it but you could uh, educate someone. And, and I think lots of times when I, I say I bring someone on the farm, it's like a 10 person spinoff. When you bring someone to the farm and they have a good experience, it's a whole new world for them. And they go home in the next family reunion or, or social gathering they have, they, uh, they tell the story. Right. And then that spins off to 10 more people. Right. So that's what I always think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Well, it's settled then. Farmsy, I'll be calling you tomorrow. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> Sounds good. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about beef prices and uh, and the sudden climb. And, and me and Lance have kind of been texting a little bit back and forth. So I'm pretty new to all this stuff about how beef prices work in general, but also what the supply and demand uh, kind of 
traits are of the market, uh, what causes beef prices to go up or down. And, and I had kind of texted Lance, like I expected beef prices to go down because uh, commodity prices are through the roof, like like way through the roof. So I, I thought there would be kind of a thinning of the herd going on. And, and Lance had some actually some different perspectives on that. Yeah, and just a disclaimer, I'm certainly not a market analyst in any way. And this there's lots of other people that are much better at this than I am. But, you know, there, there has been a thinning of the herd in North America. And, and what the U.S. does, certainly, you know, it's, it's so much bigger, so much such a bigger cow herd. You know, a percent or two swing there is a, is a major deal for, for us. But, uh, yeah, there's been, you know, there's been different droughts. There's always different weather events that affect things. But there's been a, quite a thinning of the herd for a number of years. And actually, if I were to go back even further than just droughts the last few years, I would actually place a lot of that blame on ethanol production. You know, as soon as they started mandating ethanol uh, percentages and fuels, that made corn and by extension, you know, wheat prices, um, you know, increase. And people were breaking up more pasture land and turning it into cropland. More marginal land has been turned into cropland because of, because of that crop up of commodity prices and also new seeding tools, new varieties, all those sort of things have been making it much more profitable on marginal land that you never used to be. Even so, land prices on good land going, going through the roof has increased the need to turn marginal land into cropland. Yeah, so, so this artificial inflation of, of commodity prices because of ethanol uh, production um, mandates has, has really been turning this against the beef cow for probably 10, 15 years now. And the, the herd has been thinning. And I think now we're at the point where we're actually going to start becoming short on beef. And I think the next few years are going to be pretty good for the cow calf producer. I don't, I don't know if the feeder, the feedlots are going to see much change, but I think it's going to be decent for the cow calf producer. And, you know, today it really struck me. I went into the local grocery store and took a look at the ground beef prices and it, it, you know, it's, it's doubled, I think. Like, I, I think you used to build a, not even a half a year ago, get ground beef for under $4 a pound or around $4 a pound. And yeah, now it's seven fifty. dollars oh, a pound. That's crazy. And, and I think it's because there's no cows being killed right now. Right. And, and I think you've even seen that with your cull prices on your, on your dairy cull cows. Yeah, we normally sit around 55, 60 cents for a good dairy cow on the rail. And uh, and now, like, the last couple of good dairy cows we shipped was 70 cents. So, yeah, it's up. And that, I mean, you know, dairy cows are all hamburger, right? So that's that's directly where that meat's going into. So, yeah, no, prices are definitely up. So it's positive. So why don't you think that the – obviously, supply and demand has a little bit to do with this. Like, So there's been a 10-year decreasing in, in supply, which now is going to increase demand, right? Um, that's just kind of naturally how the, those those market trends will work. But why then does the feedlot industry not see a, a, a bit of a swing? Are they just consistently able to to create margin, or or what's the reason for that then? Well, I'm you got to talk to somebody a little smarter than me on that. But but yes, I think they're always consistent. Where's Karen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Karen, <laughs> help. But they're always consistently working. Whether you know they're they they're not reliant on, on, you know, that base price. They're, they're always just going to pay for that. They're going to pay for that calf in the fall 
what they can pay for based on their, their, you know, the barley price and their feed price and, and then, you know, what they can forward contract for. So they're, they're, there's obviously going to be swings. There's going to be some times where if they stay cash, they're going to make out, you know, extremely well if, if prices spike on them over a, over a winter or something like that. But for the most part, they're always just locking in their margin and not too many people work on straight cash anymore. Usually they're, they're forward contracted. Right. Yeah. They're able to, uh, oops, my phone's going here. They're able to, uh, to, to basically hedge on, on that. Right. So I just Google it stat Canada. Now I don't know how reliant stat Canada is because we usually lie when we do stat Canada survey results. So I don't know if they're, uh, if, if they're super reliable, but, uh, September, 2024, one kilogram, um, uh, ground beef package was $11 and that works out to, um, then this month, this must not be right. Cause it says $11 for September, 2020 and January, 2021 is, is $12. So it's only up by a dollar. Now well, that is probably I, I Canada wide. I think it's, I think it's went up a lot just in the past month. Right. Hmm. It'd be interesting. I think, I think we're fighting more now. Like I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm reason, reasonably optimistic about this fall, but, but far more optimistic about calf, you know, being a cow calf producer and producing uh, bred females for next year. Right. Uh, you know, we already saw it this this fall, and there's really no reason for it. Calf prices were not particularly strong this fall, but bred heifer prices were very strong. Like, you know, whereas last year, a year and a half ago, you know, you're struggling sixteen, eighteen hundred dollars for a bred heifer. Top ones were maybe a little over two. You know, now this, this last fall in November, December, pretty much everything was two to 22. The top ones were 28 to 3000. There's a real spike in it. So I think that's because, you know, people are realizing they're, they're, they, they need more breeding animals. Yeah. There's just not enough mothers around the, the calf crop is good. Um, uh, but the herd is just the, the general North American herd is just not growing. So now there's a push for female genetics. And there's no, you know, grain prices or grain crops. You can have a bumper crop and really overproduce one year. You can't have a bumper crop of calves, right? No. We've been, we've been stuck at this, you know, 85%, you know, weaned off to the cowherd stat for a long, long time. And that's just kind of the way it's been for 40 years now. Wait, what was it said? 85%? 85%. You know, that's, you know, you get you have you wean off about 85% as an right. industry. You we're losing fifteen percent of the calves to to death or to open rate. Yeah, you can't um, do one hundred and ten. So your your herd never grows by. Yeah, you, it's no way to do that, right? So maybe, so maybe yeah, just, like a bumper crop, you you can you can you can wildly swing your wheat yields mm-hmm, by a hundred percent year over year sometimes, right? Yeah, you can't do that with cattle. We've been no, we've true. been stuck at that fifteen percent open and death rate for for a long long time. I'm trying to I'm trying to change that with some of our world's college research. We can talk about that in another episode, but but that is the stat we've been stuck at for 40 years. But even changing that stat to 90%, which would be a, a 5% increase, is, is still not a whole lot, really. And then that would take a lot of work to do that, to go at 85 It takes a lot of work. Well, we're talking millions of cattle. A couple percent increase is a lot of cattle. It's a lot of extra calves. Yeah, that's and, true. And it doesn't matter what commodity you talk about. I don't, you know, if it's oil or if it's, if it's grains or if it's cattle, you know, a couple percent increase or decrease to supply 
changes the price wildly, right? It's yeah, not just a couple percent increase in the price. It, it can I mean, do, do a 30% increase to the price if you have a, a couple percent shortage of supply. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, still no desire to use like female sex semen or anything then to, to create more heifers on, on your current herd? Oh, I think there is places like mine. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but for the most part, most people aren't as focused on female development as we are. Right. And, and getting a better female that, that produces a better calf is pretty important in that industry. Yeah. I mean, purebred guys are, are selling bulls and, and, Female development is a bit secondary. Some are more focused on it than others. And then for the most part, the commercial guy, he wants that terminal cross because steers are 20 cents more per pound and gain you know, a few more pounds than heifers. And you're probably selling a steer for 100 to $150 more in the fall than you sell a heifer for. And the irony is, is kind of there, because hey, we talked about this last episode about how how cutthroat and how intense and how crazy the purebred market is especially during these three or four months here in, in the spring but that just does not exist at all in the heifer side of things and it's a 50 50 split you sure you need a bull but you also need a female and that calf is 50 50 right but the desire the growth and desire on the heifer side in the beef industry is not there as much as it is on the bull side well it's sure there's sure a lot of people taking notice this year to everyone wants to jump into the bread heifer game this year. It seems like, but yeah. yes, I agree. I mean, the, the, I guess, cause the bull, you can affect so much more of your herd with the bull, right? Right. Okay. Is the thing, you know, the bull will affect 25 to 30 calves a year. And you know, a female affects one. But that bull's but, mother is also affecting those 25. Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's stock guys. These stock guys are certainly focused on, on their, yeah. their mother cow herd. There is no doubt. And, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's what we're doing. I mean, there's, it's not like we're alone in this. There's other people that are, are focused on female development, but, but there's not that many. And, and yeah. I see that as a, as a good area to be in. So for all our beef producers listening, if you haven't heard, I guess, of, of Lance Nielsen, um, check out his Facebook page, Nielsen Cattle Development, and uh, you'll see uh, you'll see what they're doing there with some of the special things they're doing with Olds on developing heifers and, and researching which ones are the best ones and, and some different handling practices that create better heifers in the long term. Um, so if you're interested in, in buying heifers for the upcoming season, make sure that you check out their Facebook and, and Twitter pages and, and get in contact with them. You bet. Yeah, it's uh, it's been some interesting interesting things we've learned in the in the past in the relationship with Olds College. It's been good. Yeah, I think we'll probably designate a whole a whole episode to to research and some of the things that we're both doing on that front. You bet. Yeah. So so Buttergate, we we left a cliffhanger last week, and I'll be honest with you, I don't actually understand what this is about. I've seen <laughs> I've seen the headlines. And, you know, I'm a beef guy, so I guess I don't care, but as much as, as you do in your, because it's your industry, but I seen the headlines and I kind of glossed over them. And then you mentioned stuff about Buttergate and I kind of triggered my, triggered my memory that I did see a headline, but I honestly don't understand what it's about. So it's, it's funny that, that you say that you don't, don't know much about it. Cause I think you're in the 95th percentile of Canada. Like very few people actually know what's going on. It's seemingly a bigger deal than I think that it's being made out to be, um, uh, and I think uh, I think that dairy farmers, like we talked about last episode a little bit, with just ourselves, with our our social media algorithms, is 
in this particular case, we live in an echo chamber again, where we think that this is a giant deal, but actually a whole lot of people just don't even know anything about it, right? But uh, yeah, so, but I'll, I'll explain it, I guess, as best I can. Um, uh, Buttergate basically is uh, a construct of a few people's opinions that uh, butter is no longer as soft as it used to be, used to be. but there is, of course, uh, no scientific backing to this. Um, uh, and even, I think, across most of Canada, not even the same amount of people agreeing with it, like the anecdotal uh, information isn't really there either, right? So it, it's a few people's opinions about it. There are a few political agendas at play here, which is unfortunate in a case like this, um, but not unusual for the supply management industry to get attacked from a political standpoint, uh, which is unfortunate again as well. Um, uh, but uh, basically what's going on is that dairy farmers probably for the last 30, 40 years, well, actually it's proven like because I've had a lot of old farmers on my Twitter saying they've been using it for 30 or 40 years. So palm, palm oil is created for human consumption. Um, so you'll see it in your Nutella, you'll see it in your peanut butter and pretty much any delicious product that you're currently using has some sort of palm oil in it. And by having a need for palm oil, there's a need for palm fat, which is what we're feeding to the cows. Hopefully I got those two in the correct order. If not, switch them out and, and it's still correct. But uh, we're basically using the pie product of, of what the humans are using for consumption uh, for their palm oil. And uh, it comes from Malaysia, so it's it's uh, basically comes from a, a country that is uh, widely deforesting a lot of uh, forest forestry areas in their country. And that, of course, has a significant environmental impact, which is unfortunate. Um, uh, so I, I guess if, if, if the people who don't want palm fat in milk are coming from an environmental standpoint, I would understand. But then there would be a lot of products that are on the chopping block and it wouldn't just be dairy. So that's something that we need to be uh, cognizant of. Um, uh, but then from a political standpoint, basically, there was the argument made that dairy farmers are using palm fat to be able to meet uh, supply or uh, demand, basically meet demand with supply. And uh, that uh, is definitely not true. Um, we can produce more milk if need be. We can produce higher density fat milk if we need to. Um, but basically, we're feeding cows a little bit of palm fat to be able to increase production. Um, it's just a healthy product. It's great for overall energy. It's great for pregnancy rate. Um, so it's a great product that we use and we continue to use. It's it's pretty cost prohibitive. It's pretty expensive. So we don't use lots of it. Um, there's a breaking point on margin that way. So it's not like we're feeding tons and tons and tons of the cows. We're literally feeding grams to the cows. Like I think our farm only feeds about 150 grams a cow a day. So it's really not that much. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, that's basically Buttergate in a nutshell. But it's sure dragging the dairy industry through the mud at the moment. So Buttergate wouldn't be buttergate if you used canola oil, for example, instead of palm oil. Like that's the whole reason is the environmental impact, the deforestation of Malaysia. That's the only, that's the only angle they're coming at here. Whereas if you look at pretty much everything we eat, I think whether it's a chocolate bar or like you said, peanut butter or even potato chips, I'm pretty sure palm oil is listed in all those as, a, as an ingredient. Yeah, it's... Uh... I would agree with with that uh, statement that 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 should be the way that this is being come at. Um, it's not though. So first, it was it was made uh, aware by a food uh, blogger or someone in Calgary actually who who said that her butter was changing, and, and so she put it on social media. Her cult following basically agreed with her, and then we had this professor out of uh, Quebec, out of Dalhousie University, 
he came forward on social media and he is a known critic of supply manager, very, very vocal critic of supply management on on its supposedly raising of, of dairy prices inside of uh, the Canadian uh, retail markets. Um, and he fully attacked uh, the Buttergate because he said we were using palm oil as a way to meet our supply management requirements. And that in, in, in res as a result was basically changing the quality of the milk. And that's where the political angle came from. So while he didn't necessarily care that palm fat was changing the composition of milk, he cared that we were using palm fat, as he said, a ways of, of creating, of meeting uh, demand basically. So that, that was kind of a different angle and, and we don't agree with that. I see. Well, for the people that are not in the dairy industry, I think I speak for all of them. I say we don't care. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Okay, I, think, I, I don't think we. I don't think anybody cares. I mean, yeah. What What do we care? You're, exactly. You're talking grams. I mean, palm oils and everything that we eat. I think the the political agenda of a of one professor probably got a lot more attention than it deserved because the industry is sensitive in the same fashion that we opened this podcast with about tours. We all feel very sensitive and attacked on many different fronts and maybe we give it too much airplay. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. Um, uh, I, uh, I have no problem answering any questions and, and saying that we, we feed palm oil um, or palm fat, but uh at the same point, if, if I mean, if the so Dairy Farms Canada now has created a working group to investigate this, which is the the correct move for by us to to investigate and to see if there's legitimate claims and and if there is legitimate claims, if if butter composition has changed, we're the first people that want to change that. If if we are doing something that is changing composition, then we will by all means do everything possible to change that so that we create continually um, supply a, a, a delicious product and a quality product. So we have no problem admitting if we're wrong, we just need to know if we're wrong or not, because it's just based on anecdotal information right now, right? Why would we change an entire industry based on hearsay? So it needs to take a little bit of time here to double check it basically. But farmers, they're they're very transparent. We want to be as transparent as we can with the consumer because that's, that's who pays our bills and that's who we want to be um, delivering a, a product to. Exactly. <laughs> a, whole, a whole nother, a whole nother topic, but I guess you see those you see those thank a farmer memes and thank a farmer campaigns. I think as farmers, we should be thanking our consumers every day because they're the reason that we can do what we do. And yes, everybody needs food, but we appreciate that they choose our food and we do take it very seriously. If there is something that we're doing that is changing or something we're doing that isn't, isn't up to a standard or, you know, we, we definitely want to be addressing that for sure. Yeah, we're not charities, right? I mean, I never really liked that thank a farmer campaign either. I, I understand it because we're almost like sympathize. We're sympathizing with farmers, but we're business people. I mean, most of us are, and we uh, we're in this for a business. Um, we make a good living at it, and it's a, it's a it's a not an easy living. But if I wasn't willing to do that, I wouldn't be in it, right? So I don't need thanks. I need you to buy my product, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> Well, we can put the cliffhangers over. We can put Buttergate to to rest now, and I send it into oblivion. Uh, you guys got a working group that will get it all figured out in five years from now. It'll all be clear. Butter will cure cancer in five years. I will not guarantee it, but I will at least say it now, so you can start eating as much butter as you can. 
Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Anecdotal butter, also. Butter. Yeah, butter on your steak. Just slather butter on your steak. <laughs> yeah. We did that in college, Iron. It's pretty good. Like in the oven then, because we didn't have a barbecue during the winter. So you stick it in there with a the slab of butter during in the oven. Mm, delicious. Yeah, no, that is good. Really good for sure. So now I guess we'll we'll uh, we'll wrap up and we'll finish with our our WTF segment, the what the farm. Um, um, so I guess Lance, you can go first. Um, something cool or not cool that happened on your farm this week? Well, I'm going to go with something cool for our first WTF segment, and it's going to tie into what we're talking about earlier with beef prices. You know, we we gather um, replacement quality heifers throughout the winter. Some are purchased from from uh, pre-sort sales and some are purchased directly from people that we know and our neighbors. And uh, we try to gather some good groups of different, different uh, breeds. We have some, uh, you know, four, four different breeds or four different crosses, especially represented. And this, this year, I think after last fall's, you know, hot bread heifer market, there's, there's sure a lot of interest in people wanting to buy open heifers. And I find it interesting, you know, we gathered those heifers. We started in October through November and added some even in January. And people weren't on that bandwagon yet, I guess, or they don't have the facilities. But, but now all of a sudden we're getting the weather's warm and people are starting to think about springtime and, and everybody is wanting open heifers right now. So like yesterday, we actually had three different groups through our pens, looking at heifers, and and that's that's pretty cool. It made me feel pretty excited about about the fact that you know we we were thinking far enough ahead to have some inventory for people people's desires here this spring. Yeah, and it's awesome that you're actually able to create a product that people are desired in as well, right? Like you're you're creating some kind of value added, really. So that's really interesting. What you guys are doing. You bet. How about yourself? What's uh, what WTF moment did you have this week? Yeah, so, so so since you went with cool, I'll go with not cool. I had to uh, ship uh, the Angus bull I bought from you a couple years ago, and he came in weighing at two thousand and seven pounds today. Once he was finally shipped, and uh, my uh, dairy handling facilities for my pretty quiet uh, cows uh, did not stand up well to a two thousand pound bull <laughs> having no wanting no part of going onto the trailer. So a couple of gates broken, a couple of clips bent, um, uh, and uh, a pretty angry bull with his head down, with his eyes closed, was not a good recipe for for our farm this afternoon. So I have to maybe rethink how long we keep some of these Angus bulls before they become so big we can't get rid of them anymore. So we did finally get him on the trailer, so he should be in your McDonald's Happy Meal by the weekend. So that is at least positive. You know, I, I don't want Angus guys to get too angry at me here, but but Angus are kind of jerks. Hmm. Interesting. You know, they're just a, a little more stubborn. I don't know. I mean, I have I, I like Angus. That's what we have. But this is an example. Yeah. You have an Angus calf that's, you know, hours old. They will give out that loud Angus beller and they'll, and they'll, yep. they'll run at you sometimes or and you just don't get that from other breeds. They just have that just a little, a little different that way. And then the bulls, they just have a kind of a never give up attitude. Some of them. Hmm. And it's, uh, interesting. It's, it's so different, but Hey, we, I, I'm, I'm a proud Angus owner of many Angus based cows and bulls. So yeah, I, I like them, but yeah, that's wow. kind of their, their MO. 
we uh, we have a pretty healthy fear of bulls in our farm. My dad, when I was, I think, 10 or 9, uh, was severely attacked by a Holstein bull. So if you're thinking Angus bulls are bad, try and work with like a four-year-old Holstein bull that's like by since birth been raised by a human. So really has no fear of humans. I think that's why we have beef bulls around us because they they still have a healthy respect for the most part for humans. And, yeah. and while the, the odd one can definitely turn on you, it's not like a common thing. So with the whole scene, it's a totally different story. They're so playful. They're so used to you that they'll 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 just snap one day and, and bust you up. So my dad had his, I think, had eight ribs broken and a bunch of internal bleeding going on. I think he was out for six weeks. Um, so we have a pretty healthy fear of bulls on our farm. And we usually don't keep them too long. So today was kind of a reminder that we have to ship them out before they get dangerous. Yeah, no doubt. No, I've heard that about Holsteins. You just don't don't mess with a Holstein bull, that's for sure. And they're normally tall too, right? So, I mean, this guy was 2,000 pounds, but he was pretty short. Um, uh, those Holstein bulls, like they're, they could be, they could be five and a half feet tall. Like they're, we're almost six feet tall. Yeah. Like they're, they're pretty tall. So, yeah, pretty but good. I guess that wraps it up for episode three. Um, thanks for all our listeners for listening in today. And hopefully we push that 35 number up to 55 and uh, we'll start, uh, We'll start bringing on guests, I think, in the next couple episodes, maybe, or uh, start seeing if we can entertain you guys with some different angles. Um, and of course, if you got any questions or comments, feedback, negative or positive, shoot us a DM or personal message on any of our social media accounts, and we are always open to suggestions. You bet. And Jake's gonna premiere his stand-up routine next next episode too. So. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, right. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks. Talk to you later. Thanks. You bet. Bye.